Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey guys, it's Amy Walter. Ready for some politics? All right, let's get going. Two things happened on the Hill this week. The most high profile, of course, came on Thursday when the Republican-controlled Senate voted with Democrats in a rebuke of President Trump's national emergency declaration for funding of the border wall. Senator Susan Collins of Maine spoke prior to that vote. It is a solemn occasion involving whether or not this body will stand up for its institutional prerogatives and will support the separation of powers enshrined in our Constitution. The yeas are 59, the nays are 41, the joint resolution is passed. A dozen Republicans voted against the president. But here's something that might have gotten lost. The day before, seven Republican senators voted along with Democrats to end U.S. support of the Saudi-led war in Yemen. What does the split tell us about President Trump's relationship with Republicans in Congress? Eliana Johnson is a White House reporter for Politico. She's been following this and is here to help us make sense of it all. Eliana, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Is this a big deal? I think it's a medium deal. It was certainly viewed as a big deal because Republicans, by and large, despite their discomfort with the president's style and a lot of his rhetoric, have stuck by him on most legislative priorities and even tried to dodge, uh, you know, when asked about his tweets. So I think we're seeing Republicans more and more emboldened when it comes to defying the president, though I don't think this will necessarily hurt him all that much politically. It could become really significant given that we're going to see the the Mueller report come down. And that certainly has the potential to hurt him politically, certainly if Republicans abandon him. But do you think this gives us any indication about whether they are going to abandon the president on Mueller? Or is this just because it was about separation of powers and sort of a flexing of institutional muscle? I don't think it gives us an indication necessarily on issues, but I do think it tells us how much political risk they're willing Mm. to take in separating themselves from Trump. For a lot of Republicans who come from red states, Mike Lee of Utah, Rand Paul of Kentucky, these are people who have generally aligned themselves with the president, but who said that they were willing to vote against him. A lot of other Republicans ended up siding with the president because of the political risk who are up in 2020. Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Ted Cruz of Texas, interestingly, who is a constitutional scholar. So you could see Republicans wrestling with what to do on this, where they wanted to vote against the president, but they understand that Trump is popular in their states. I think that will play out after Mueller releases his report as well. I want to talk about a couple of those folks who are up in 2020, including Tom Tillis, as you pointed out, North Carolina, swing state. He even, Tillis did, wrote an op-ed before he took this vote saying that Trump's national emergency violated the separation of powers and created a dangerous precedent. So how did he go from saying this was a dangerous precedent to actually supporting it? Well, clearly, the, the principle that Tillis was operating on changed. Uh, he early on was looking at this through as a matter of constitutional principle. And, you know, a couple of weeks later was looking at it through the prism of his 2020 reelection, the president, uh, pretty popular among Republicans in North Carolina. And that became Tillis's first priority for the vote. 
I want to talk about what this says, too, about the hold that the president has on the party more specifically. You have written about something that happened last weekend where Vice President Mike Pence went to a conservative gathering in Georgia, and he and Vice President Dick Cheney had a conversation where Cheney was pretty critical of the Trump administration's policies on foreign policy, and uh, Pence was there defending him somewhat uncomfortably. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there and what you think this means going forward? Does this suggest that the party is more willing to buck the president on foreign policy issues like we saw with this vote on Yemen? It's it's an interesting question. Uh, Dick Cheney did challenge Mike Pence. Uh, he asked him whether this administration uh, might not be listening to the intelligence community enough. Uh, might they not be treating their allies well enough? And I think for a lot of Republicans in attendance at this gathering, it was interesting to hear Dick Cheney, of all people, raising these questions because he certainly uh, was portrayed as, you know, in the Bush administration as a hawk's hawk, as a sort of cowboy diplomat and as the master of foreign policy of the George W. Bush administration. And I, somebody joked to me, you know, if Dick Cheney thinks you're crazy. Uh, but anyway, so uh, he was challenging Mike Pence. And it was interesting because Pence's responses weren't, you know, so along the lines of, look, you tried it your way and we're simply trying it a different way. We don't agree with your way. They were somewhere in the middle. Um, but I think Republicans sort of don't know where to go on this. They are fearful because they think Trump in running in 2016 revealed that where they thought their voters were weren't actually where their voters were and that uh, Republican voters aren't comfortable with the sort of interventionism that George W. Bush tried uh, rather unsuccessfully. And I think while voters may have their hearts more with Trump, he hasn't shown maybe a more successful way to conduct American foreign policy. And I think Republicans are sort of still feeling out what that policy that maybe sits between a sort of Rand Paul isolationist and a Marco Rubio or George W. Bush interventionist looks like. The Trump administration maybe would have tried to navigate that, but I think Republicans are largely uncomfortable with the way the president has done that. I want to step back a moment. Let's go more of a 30,000-foot view. Thinking about where the party goes post-Trump, have you gotten any insight as you're watching the party then the folks within the party react to the president, the president doing what he's doing. Like, what does this tell us about the kind of person that will succeed Trump in running for president? You know, I think there are two different views. I think one is that uh, Trump is an aberration and everything will go back to how it was before Trump. So that's one view. I think the second view... That seems view, so unlikely, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it seems unlikely. I mean, one of my questions is, Trump seems to have kind of done away with all the forms of presidentialism, all the ways that we saw a president behave before. And I sort of wonder if, if that will outlast Trump or a president will behave like we saw a president behave right. before. But I think the second view among uh, Republican lawmakers is what do they take from Trump in terms of either policy views or tone and rhetoric and move forward? And I think you see some Republicans trying to pull threads out of Trump and work them into a sort of normal politician. And those people, I think, are Nikki Haley, who aligned herself with Trump on some things, distanced herself on others. Tom Cotton, the same thing. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I think all the people that you talk about as potential Republican presidential nominees, you see aligning themselves with the president on some things, but mostly not adopting his rhetoric and right. style. Right. The style piece, I think... I agree with you that that's the least likely to 
go along with the next president, right? Nobody can act exactly like Trump. And what Trump can do and get away with is because of who he is. But in terms of the policies, I mean, is there an acknowledgement now from folks within the establishment, like you had said about foreign policy, that where Republicans are on immigration, on tax policy, on tariffs and trade, and it's just not the Republican Party of the early 2000s or 1990s. It just is going to be a more populist sort of nationalist party. I think so, though I don't think that the discrete positions are worked out. Certainly on immigration, I think Trump revealed that the base was in a completely different place than uh, Republican leaders, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, both of whom supported comprehensive immigration reform. On trade, I think Republicans are still divided. You've got senators like Pat Toomey, who are you know still very pro free market and and trade and who are really only willing to stand up to Trump on that. But you've got others who are willing to stand with Trump on on tariffs and a lot of other things. But I think on trade, uh, that's perhaps not going to stick so much. And I think the hmm. the party's really still feeling itself out about where policy-wise it's, it's going where, to be on that matter. I want to come back to the fact that the president is now likely to put two vetoes in in place, you know, his first two vetoes of his presidency. And it seems to me that he will see this as actually something that is uh, good for him in the sense politically, it's not that he's getting rebuked, it's that he's standing up for the things that he said he was going to stand up for. I think that's right. And interestingly enough, a couple people close to the president had said to me that they don't really see this as a political defeat for him. They're much more worried about Trump's seeming embrace of increases in legal immigration. That's something that's much more likely to alienate his base than having to veto something that was supported by some members of his own party. How is he supporting increased legal immigration? He said a few times that he wants to see legal immigrations in the highest numbers ever. That's He said that in the State of the Union. It was not in the script. It surprised a lot of people. Breitbart is after him for repeating the remark again in comments to reporters that he's basically said his economy has created so many jobs, Americans can't fill them. So we do need increases in legal immigration. And his comments have taken place alongside an effort by Jared Kushner to reach a bipartisan agreement that perhaps could produce legislation that would increase legal immigration. And so I think you've seen Kushner's efforts sort of seep into the president's Mm. remarks on legal immigration. And there is some concern that this could anger his base. Eliana Johnson from Politico, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I wanted to get the pulse on the ways Republican voters across the country feel about what's happening in Washington and the direction of the party. So I turn to you, our listeners. I am calling from Doral, Florida. My name is Maria. I'm very happy with the direction of the GOP. My hope for the future, they should stay the course. Keep doing what you're doing. Hi, my name is Steve. I'm calling from Seattle, Washington. Donald Trump is a disgrace to any traditional Republicans. People like myself who have voted primarily Republican for the longest time, I know we're in a minority, but we have our eyes open. This man is vulgar. This man is sickening. This man is corrupt on every level. He has to go. He will take down the entire Republican Party and its history of Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and everyone else good with him. 
This is Charlie in Portland, Oregon here. You know, regarding the state of the GOP, Donald Trump is what he is. I mean, I like how he acts all the time, but his policies are spot on. And, uh, you know, Barack Obama was a nice enough guy, but we didn't like his policy. So I guess it's time we start to focus on uh, returning to constitutional rights, individual freedoms. As conservatives, we have a responsibility to uh, stem the tide of socialism that's arising in the country. And I think that's really where we need to go. Focus on the policies that work and uh, really try to get that message out there. Three takes from three of our listeners. We always want to hear from you. Are you a Republican? Let us know how you are feeling about the direction of the party. Give us a call, 877-8-MY-TAKE. Pressure on President Trump isn't just coming from Congress. This is uh, Bill Weld, former governor of Massachusetts and uh, now thinking of entering the Republican primaries uh, for the 2020 election. You may also remember that he ran with Gary Johnson on the Libertarian ticket in 2016. I'm Governor Gary Johnson. I'm Governor Bill Weld. I'm running for president. I'm running with him. I asked Weld why not run on the third party ticket again this time around. I, I just decided that the country is in enough peril from the presidency of Mr. Trump so that I wanted to run right at him and focus the attention on him and what he's done and not done. And that's much easier to do running as an R than running as a L. But here's a reality any potential primary challenger faces. President Trump's approval ratings among Republicans have remained incredibly consistent and very strong. But that's not enough to dissuade Bill Weld. I really don't think the country can afford to have six more years of the antics that he has displayed. Withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords was irresponsible. Withdrawing from the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership was irresponsible. Uh, in my view, withdrawing from the Iranian uh, nuclear deal was irresponsible. And I don't know how much thought the president gives those things, but he, he doesn't appear to give them much thought at all. And what really galls me is no one seems to be looking ahead, looking to the future to see what's going to have to be done. But if you asked at least polls show this, Republican voters, should we have gotten out of the Iran deal? Yes. Should we have gotten out of TPP? Yes. Should we have got out of Paris climate? Yes. Should we have had the tax cut legislation? Yes. Should we... Well, I agree on that one. I agree on the tax cut. <laughs> okay. So the tax cuts, but most of what he's done is pretty popular with Republicans. It's not necessarily popular with Democrats. It's not necessarily popular with independents, even though on issues like immigration, Republicans decidedly behind him. So is the problem that the Republican Party has changed or that Donald Trump is not a proper reflection of the Republican Party? Well, I think I think the Republican Party has changed to the extent it's sitting still for and remaining quiet for the uh, antics of President Trump as opposed to saying, you know something, the emperor really doesn't have any new, new clothes. To that extent, yeah, the party has shifted. Uh, you know, I, I can never forget that... Uh, the Whig Party in the 1850s, it was the antecedent of the Republican Party, it split in half on the issue of slavery. And the Southern pro-slavery segment of the party became known as the Know Nothing Party. And they were characterized by anti-immigrant fervor. They hated Catholics. They hated the Catholics coming in from Germany and Italy. And they held violent rallies. And they were given to conspiracy theories. They're the lineal forebears of the Trump movement within the Republican Party. The other half of the party 
joined John C. Fremont and the Free Soil Party and elected Abraham Lincoln president of the United States four years later. So there are those two elements to the Republican Party. I consider myself a member of the party of Lincoln uh, with the better angels of our nature. And I think a lot of uh, Jeb Bush uh, voters, supporters, uh, Mitt Romney supporters, matter of fact, almost all the ones I, I, I talk to are dismayed uh, at the uh, uh, shallowness of the president's attention to the demands of his job. And yet, do you think that they would think about not voting for him, either in a primary or general election? Sure. I think I think in time. I mean, that's why we have elections and discussions before elections. And I assume the president's handlers will advise him not to debate anybody. But uh, beyond a certain point, you know, if I can make uh, convincing arguments on issues, I think he'll pay a price for that, a political price. If you get into this thing, even if you don't beat Donald Trump, do you think that it it could cause chaos or damage to the president that a Democrat would win the White House? And if so, would that be okay with you? No, that, that, that's not the reason I'm doing this. The reason I'm doing it is because I've thought for 15 years I could start Monday and do that job at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And I know what I think about everything, which is more than, more than some people do. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm up to it and I'd like to try to uh, earn it. Uh, having said all that, the history is that in the last 10 elections, going back to 1952, where there was a sitting president running for re-election, five times there was a primary challenge to that president, and all five times that president lost, lost the general election, all five times. The other five times, there was no primary challenge, and in all five of those occasions, the, the sitting president coasted to re-election. So history suggests that what you say may be true, that a primary challenge to a sitting president could have some, uh, some impact on the election. You said that you didn't believe that the president acts in an honorable way. Do you think that he, the Republicans in Congress should be holding him to account? Yeah, I think I said I don't think he's serious about his job. It's just another reality TV show for him. Um, well, there's one Republican, Lindsey Graham, who holds him to account and then praises him to the skies and then holds him to account and then praises him to the skies. So that's at least one. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I probably have a dozen good friends in, in the U.S. Senate, and they're the same people they always were. I, I will say this in response to your question. I am surprised that no one else has raised their hand and said, uh, you know, I don't think the president is really up to this. He's not in the right place. Are you disappointed then that many of the people that you know and feel you're on the same side with aren't standing up and saying that? You know, I would just say I'm surprised. And, and I don't know who, you know, who it would be. But, and I would welcome anybody in who, who wants to come in. I've never, ever advised anyone not to run for a political office because my view is the more the merrier. And you never know. Uh, you know, Paul Sangas taught me decades ago, you never know where your next coalition is coming from. And you don't know what uh, the odd bounce of the ball may bring, uh, apropos of what you were saying earlier about secondary effects of a candidacy. But I do think that vigorous and open debate is a very good thing for democracy. And, you know, if I had to give you uh, in one sentence why I'm not only animated to do this, but, you know, jet propelled uh, to do at least as much as I've done to this point, it's a concern about the future of democracy in the United States. 
Governor Weld, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Okay, it's a great pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Well, we just heard from former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, who is considering a primary challenge to President Donald Trump. Henry Olson is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. It's a conservative think tank. He's also an opinion columnist at The Washington Post. And he thinks Bill Weld or any other moderate Republican considering a challenge to President Trump is on a fool's errand. Trump is giving most of the party what they want. You, know, you can identify national Republicans or separate them into four different factions. Fiscal conservatives have gotten tax cut. Social conservatives have gotten judges and religious liberty. Business conservatives have gotten deregulation. And then Trump brought a bunch of blue-collar workers, which I call nationalist conservatives, and they're getting immigration and trade. And, of course, there's some overlap between those groups. And that's uh, pretty much about 80 percent of uh, the Republican voters base, which is also pretty close to what his job approval rating is. And so the people that he lost, you argue, are the 20 percent who identify themselves as moderates. That's right. When you take a look at the people who have actually been abandoning the Republican Party in elections, they largely are not people who are uh, former movement conservatives. In fact, the Voter Study Group, a uh, cross-partisan group of pollsters and analysts uh, housed at the Democracy Fund did a poll after the 2016 election, and they found that the people who voted for Romney in 2012 and Clinton in 2016 were more liberal than any other Republican faction on questions like the Muslim ban or immigration or even social issues or income inequality, all the issues that, uh, not surprisingly, have been at the heart of the debate between the two parties during the Trump administration. The only announced primary opponent to Donald Trump is Bill Weld, who is a moderate. Uh, And then there is talk of other potential moderates challenging the president, whether it's Governor Larry Hogan from Maryland or John Kasich, the former governor of Ohio. How much damage could a primary challenge to the president do to, to him and his chances in the general election? You know, I think that if it were a primary challenge that we're able to, say, get a third of the vote in New Hampshire, that would be a signal of weakness. Now, again, not necessarily with the base Republicans, but it would be a signal of weakness among people who he needs to get in uh, November. But it's not clear to me that any of these people are in a position right now to do that. Uh, one thing is that so many of these people who were... Uh, or are disenchanted Republicans uh, will have an opportunity to play in the Democratic primary. And you have to ask yourself, if you're a moderate suburbanite who loved Romney and hates Trump, what are you going to do? Are you going to go and throw your vote away for somebody you know isn't going to beat the president? Or are you going to go play in the Democratic primary to try and increase the chances that the choice in November is somebody you can live with rather than somebody that you really are uncomfortable with? If that happens, then I think there's virtually no chance that absent a massive drop in the president's job approval because of recession or 
Mueller investigation or all the usual suspects, that somebody will get to that point. I think you would get more of the 15 or 20 percent uh, negative that indicates a small disgruntled rump, but nothing that's really troubling. You saw in the 2018 election that many of those moderates, people who had either voted for Romney or had voted Republican in the 80s and 90s had moved over not just to support Hillary Clinton, but also to support Democrats in congressional elections. Does that worry you at all in thinking about Republicans down the road in 2024 and beyond if they have lost what was is a small but still significant group of voters to Democrats? It worries me quite a bit if I were looking at it as a Republican strategist, that my view is that the what I call the Romney coalition, the pre-Trump Republican coalition, was a, a potential majority in the House, but uh, a loser at the presidential level, that his 47 percent was much stronger in suburbs, but not capable of winning majorities in the Electoral College. And every four years, it was going to get smaller because of the demographic changes in the country. Trump basically flipped losing coalitions, but made them electorally efficient. He's got his 46 to 47 percent. But by giving up the suburbs and getting the uh, rural areas, particularly the less diverse rural areas in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, that is a electorally efficient coalition for the Senate. It makes it very difficult for the Democrats to get anything more than the slimmest majorities in the Senate. And it makes it possible to win the Electoral College, even in the face of demographic uh, slippage, but it is not a majority and you can't change the country unless you hold the House too. So my view is that what Trump or Trump's successor needs to do is expand from his 46% to either regain some of those departed people or expand the working class coalition so that includes many more non-whites, moving the Hispanic vote, moving the Asian vote, moving the African-American vote from say 7% to 14%. Just that little change would work sea changes throughout the Midwest because the Democratic Party's chances rest so much on a 90 plus percent high turnout vote model. Is the Republican Party the party of Trump or is Trump the Republican Party? I think Trump is a symptom of where the Republican Party and the new additions to the Republican Party was going, that he was very skillful at serving an underserved or unserved market and consequently uh, got people's enthusiastic support because this is what they had wanted for years, that you go back and look at polls by groups like Pew and you can see white working class voters in their beyond red and blue typology very strongly opposing illegal immigration and suspicious of free trade agreements back in 2011. But nobody in the Republican Party wanted to embrace those issues. Donald Trump did. For all of his eccentricities, for all of his problems, for all of his distinct personality, the overwhelming message of Donald Trump is that he is a product of voters' desires rather than a former of voter desires. And can someone who is not Trump, who doesn't have the personality style of Trump, still engage those white working class voters who felt alienated by previous uh, Republican candidates? I think it depends on who that person is. Uh, the person has to be very clear that uh, in a battle between labor, labor versus capital, labor comes first. 
That'll be very difficult for a lot of Republicans to do, and those people will disqualify themselves from that. But you can take a look at somebody like Ronald Reagan, who did exactly that, uh, somebody who uh, could put together the different coalitions of his time, but put the needs of the individual, the working class person ahead of the need of the businessman or the executive or the entrepreneur. And somebody who can speak that language can be a little less angry uh, and a little more positive, but still convince the white and I believe non-white working class that their future is best handled uh, by, uh, by them. They can place their future in that person's hands. But again, it has to be somebody who's willing to do it. It can't be somebody who reads off of a cue card or reads polls. You know, there's the uh, old time back in the uh, Bush 41 days when Bush was told uh, what he had to project and he read the cue card aloud, message, I care. You know, it can't be somebody who's transparently pandering. It has to be somebody who can actually feel it and thus convince people with their passion. Henry Olson, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on, Amy. It's always great to talk with you. Henry Olson is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center conservative think tank, and an opinion columnist for The Washington Post. Anyway, here's my take. Since that day in 2015 when he descended the golden escalator in Trump Tower. And we are going to make our country great again. People like me have wondered whether the Republicans would split apart over Donald Trump. His populist, pro-terror views would alienate business-friendly GOP types. His past support for abortion rights and his multiple divorces would scare off evangelical voters. And his anti-immigration rhetoric went against the advice of establishment Republicans who warned that unless the GOP expanded its appeal beyond white voters, it would find itself in a demographic death spiral. Yet here we are, almost four years later, and the president is as popular with the GOP base as ever. So what keeps the Republicans together? The president has given Republicans what they wanted and avoided, for now, the things they worried about him doing. Many don't like the steel and aluminum tariffs. But back in 2016, he warned of imposing a 45% tariff on Chinese-made goods. Instead of unilaterally pulling out of NAFTA, as he once warned he'd do, he renegotiated the trade deal. And he's not wavered on cultural or social issues that are important to evangelical voters. In other words... Trump is giving most of the party what they want. Another unifying factor for the Republicans? The 2020 Democratic candidates. Even if you don't like Trump, well, the potential Democratic nominee could be much, much worse. This is why the president is spending so much time and energy labeling Democrats as the party of socialism. So the GOP sticks with Trump because he's given them most of what they want, but also because the Democratic choice is unpalatable. We should stop asking if Trump is going to lose support from Republicans. He probably won't. Instead, what we should be looking for is whether he can keep Republicans as motivated to turn out and vote. Trump had an enthusiasm advantage over Clinton in 2016. In 2018, it was Democrats who were more motivated. Let's see what 2020 brings. Coming up next, a conversation with a presidential hopeful on the Democratic side, Washington Governor Jay Inslee. And hey, if you are digging our Wu-Tang style, please review us and give us a rating on iTunes. It helps us in all sorts of mysterious algorithmic ways. Tell your friends about us. And thanks.
While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. And now a chat with another 2020 hopeful. I'm Jay Inslee, governor of the state of Washington. Jay Inslee spends a lot of time thinking about how to fight climate change. That makes it hard to make small talk with him about the weather. It doesn't actually rain here. It's just, you know, it's just the liquid solar power. That's how we think of the rain. Uh, (laughs) yeah, okay. Um, I'm not buying it. (laughs) This month, Jay Inslee declared he's running for president and climate change is his number one issue. According to a recent Pew survey, about 67% of Democrats see climate change as a top priority. But only 21% of Republicans feel the same way. I asked Governor Inslee how he plans to bring the country together over an issue that only half the country views as a top priority. We can be united around a common vision of economic growth, and that's something that ought to unite us all and can unite us all. And what we know is that climate change is a great peril, but it is also a great promise. And it is a great promise of building a clean energy economy with millions of jobs in clean energy that affect so many different parts of our economy and in virtually every region in the United States. And I believe that America is very much a can-do nation. We're very much a group of optimists. We're forward-thinking. We're technological innovators. And when we create a vision where people can participate in that new economy, that can be a very uniting message. During my brief period in the race, that's what I've seen, where people are installing wind turbines in Iowa and solar panels uh, actually in Washington state and building batteries in Nevada by the thousands for electric cars. So the economy is something that can unite us all. We want all of our children to have both air to breathe and a good job. And this is an issue that can accomplish both of those American visions. President Obama, Hillary Clinton, a lot of other Democrats also made the same message that you can have both green new jobs are the jobs of the future. Don't worry, manufacturing states or big energy producing states. You're going to have as many or more jobs. But it doesn't seem to have sunk in and it doesn't seem to be a message that works with voters in those states. So how are you going to be different in making that message than, say, President Obama or other Democrats? I am the first person in American history to run for president with the very explicit and consistent and vocal message that defeating climate change has to be the number one priority in the United States. It has to be the first, foremost, and paramount obligation of the next president. And this can't be done as just putting it on your to-do list. It has to be the central organizing principle of the federal government, just as it was in defeating fascism, just like it was going to the moon. And if it is not job one, it won't get done. And I'm saying it has to be job one. And I believe that because I've been working on this for 20 years, co-authored a book about it 11 years ago, helped establish the Sustainable Environment and Energy Coalition, founded the U.S. Climate Alliance with Jerry Brown and Andrew Cuomo, So I've got an experience to understand what is necessary, and that is you have to bring your capital to bear. You have to make it a central focus. 
And that includes uh, removing the filibuster. You have to be willing to bring reform to Washington, D.C. to be able to get that done. And I'm the only candidate saying that as well. So I think my candidacy is unique. I think it matches the moment. Certainly Democrats totally get this. It's the number one priority tied with health care in the last Iowa Democratic poll. So that in order to get really significant legislation, climate legislation through, you're arguing you need to get rid of the filibuster because as long as the filibuster is there, there's no chance of big sweeping legislation passing. Is that your case that you're making? Uh, Anyone who is really serious about tackling climate change, anyone who's actually committed to defeating climate change, has to be willing to say that the filibuster must go. There is no way on this green earth to get those supermajorities to pass meaningful climate change legislation and overcome a filibuster. So I'm outside of D.C. This is why sometimes it's helpful to have somebody from outside Washington, D.C. to go in and reform this antiquated, antediluvian tradition, which has prevented progress. Now, there's another reason to do that, which is this is an anti-democratic institution. There's nowhere in the Constitution to say that the people who want positive change get one vote and the people who don't want positive change get one and a half votes. And that's essentially what a filibuster is. What about using something like the emergency declaration? This president is using it on the border wall. Would you use it for the environment? Were I to be given the honor to go to the White House, I would want to work with Congress to fashion a very comprehensive mobilization of our efforts to defeat climate change. Now, if the rules change in this country to allow emergency declarations in some extraordinary way, any president would have to respond to that and use whatever tools are available in our democracy. But I believe the old way is the best, which is that Congress has to pass appropriations. We should have democracy where Congress actually has the power of the purse, and we should not allow a president to ignore the will of Congress. You've been governor now since 2013. Point us to your biggest success on the issue of climate change in the state. Well, our biggest success is actually developing right now because I finally have a Democratic working majority, which has been a long time coming. We passed a bill through our House, which will create a clean fuel standard to guarantee Washingtonians that they have cleaner, less polluting fuels. We've also passed a bill that requires 100% clean electricity. We're passing bills that will ban super pollutants and extend uh, our effort to try to have electrification of our transportation fleet. And I'm very excited about the next uh, few weeks to get those bills to my desk. Before that, we've had good success building a wind turbine industry uh, to a $6 billion industry, putting thousands of people to work. We are having good success electrifying our transportation fleet. We're one of the top states as to the number of electric cars. We actually have the city with the most per capita use of electric buses, and we plan on building actually the first electric drive ferries uh, to go along with our terrestrial electrification. But the point is we have to do a lot more. The nature of this beast requires us all to pitch in and to raise our sights and our level of ambition, and I believe we can do that given the nature of who we are as the the master innovators. This is what we do in America. We invent, we create, we build, and we need to raise our ambitions. And I've seen that happen when President Kennedy said we can go to the moon in 10 years and come back safely. And I believe that type of bugle call to rally Americans to their higher ambitions is very much needed and very much possible right now. 
And speaking of what, you know, Americans answering the clarion call, you're also going to ask them to make some of their own sacrifices, whether that's in maybe higher taxes or in the cost of things, even in the short term going up on electric. I know in this last election, a ballot initiative on a carbon tax lost in your state. So maybe voters have a sense that they would like to do what you're asking them to do, but can they afford the cost? And what do you need to tell voters? Do you need to be honest with voters about the real cost in dollars that something like this is going to entail? The simple fact is I majored in economics, and one of the things I learned is sometimes you can't afford to do nothing, and that's the situation now. We can't afford to do nothing. Look, I was in Paradise, California. This is a town of 25,000 about a month ago. I drove for an hour through this town. Almost all the homes, or at least most of them, were burned right to the foundation. There was nobody there. It looked like a Hollywood sort of a post-apocalypse movie. Now, if you ask those folks, can we afford to do something? Yes, they will tell you we can afford to do something because otherwise our houses burn down. In my city uh, in Seattle last year, a lot of places kids could not go out to play because of the air quality was so bad for the burning forests. So the fact is, is that our economy is being ravaged by this uh, threat right now. We cannot afford not to act. One issue that the environmental movement has gotten a bad rap for historically is that it has been somewhat exclusionary to people of color. And it is many of those same people who have tended to be the most impacted by environmental disasters and degradation overall. So I want to get uh, your thoughts on how to address that. This is a very important concept and principle of the work we're doing because we know we're going to have a transition to a decarbonized economy. We know we're going to transition the type of fuels we use and the type of technology we use. So there will be a transition. Uh, We have to make sure that it's not just a transition. We have to have a just transition. We have to make sure that we are attentive to the first victims of climate change that are most frequently marginalized communities, communities of poverty, uh, frequently communities of color. And we have to build that concept into our structure of policies, and we're doing that in our state. And we know there's many things we can do in that regard. When we think about how we build infrastructure to make sure that the first victims, which are frequently marginalized communities, are helped, when we provide our training programs to help communities that have not been participated in the growth of our economy are involved. We've got to make sure that our educational system equips people and end this cycle where people have been trapped in poverty, where zip code has been your destiny. And we're, we're fighting that right now by expanding early child education, where we can break this cycle of poverty. I know folks, I remember talking to a young woman a Latina woman who lived in an industrial area of Seattle. She was 14, and she told me that she was 11 years old before she actually knew a child who didn't have asthma. She thought all kids had asthma. Well, when you live next to the freeway and next to the heavy industrial areas and next to a, you know, a Superfund site, you experience that. So we know that we have to bring these children into the protective umbrella, and that means having a just transition. We're dedicated to that. It's got to be a very critical part of our efforts. Boeing is a big employer in your state. Um, I would love to get your your opinion on the decision to ground a number of Boeing aircraft in the wake of crashes overseas. And is this potentially a bigger problem for Boeing going forward, especially for its economic health? 
I cannot argue with this decision, particularly given the apparent similarity in the incidents. Anyone who looked at these two incidents with a new plane has to be concerned. And so I cannot argue at all with the decision to ground the planes, and I expressed that uh, earlier in discussions with Boeing. I am hopeful that a solution can be found. The people at Boeing uh, are remarkably innovative, and they've been able to fix things when this has happened before. Boeing had an incident with a previous model where the lithium-ion batteries were overheating, and they found a way to redistribute the heat and got the airplanes back in the sky. They should look at that as, I hope, a model to be able to find a solution to this. But the traveling public has to be protected. Boeing, on repeated instances, has shown ways to innovate around problems, and we're all hopeful that's going to happen as soon as possible, if indeed this uh, was associated with the plane. Finally, I want to talk about this issue that's also been roiling up both the Democratic Party, but I think overall this issue has been talked about a great deal, which is the idea of states and localities giving tax breaks to big corporations who are going to ostensibly bring jobs or keep jobs there. Amazon in New York was a big story most recently. But in your state, you were the governor when Boeing was given, I think it's now the largest tax break in U.S. history. They did end up cutting a bunch of jobs, even though they got this substantial break from uh, the Washington state government. Looking back on this decision, would you have done it differently? Well, I think we need to do things differently right now, which is to not allow corporations to stick a gun in your ribs and threaten to move 20,000 jobs out of your community if they don't get a tax break. We should be able to... Is that to... what they said to you? Yes. Yes. I mean, this is these are corporate muggings. You need to understand what goes on here. Corporations basically say, if you don't give us a tax break, we're moving all of our jobs out of your community. Or... They'll say, we're thinking about moving jobs, and they'll go to two or three communities and say, we want you to, to uh, you know, see who's going to give us the sweetest deal on big, giant corporate tax breaks. We should find a way to fight back against that. We should not allow corporations to hijack or blackmail communities. We have got to use, in my opinion, some things in our tax code that will not allow corporations to take advantage of communities and taxpayers like that. I have some ideas that I'll be talking in the future about to prevent that. These decisions about where to site locations should be made on good economics, uh, not blackmail. So we continue to experience that. I know that every mayor and governor has experienced this, and we need to band together to protect taxpayers and communities. And I look forward to, if I'm given a chance to be president, to find a way to do that. Governor Inslee, thanks for spending all this time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Jay Inslee is the governor of Washington, and he's a Democratic presidential candidate. That's all for us today. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.